0: Hello and welcome to Cybercrime Investigations. Looking for the love bug with Jeff White and Glenn Goodman. The zone of investigation quite quickly actually centred on Manila. Um, And they raided an apartment where the um, uh, email address was registered to uh, in Manila. And this was owned by um, by a woman who uh, whose brother was a computer science student at a local university, a local college. OK, so suddenly like, oh, OK, this is interesting. They then find a whole bunch of computer disks in the apartment um, that have code written on them that looks a bit virusy. Do you remember the, the, the old floppy disks, the three and a half... Was it three and a half inch floppy disks, those?
1: Yeah, I remember them. Oh, yeah. I've still got a bunch of them that I haven't... That I, I <laughs> keep meaning to get round to uh, converting, but I'm actually... In the computer that I've got right now, I actually had a, a, a floppy disk drive installed really? in it because it was a custom-made computer that I had made a few years ago. I paid a bit extra, had a floppy drive, disk drive thing put in it You're so kidding. that I can convert... Those old discs, but I still haven't got around to them.
0: That's like, that's like, you know, you go to get your custom built, you know, um, car, you know, uh, built, and you, you want steam. I want a steam engine. Can you fit steam engine? And a yeah. klaxon. I want a klaxon In on My it. new Lamborghini.
1: can I have a cassette deck, like <laughs> top of the range? That'd be lovely.
0: What is on the discs, Glenn? What are you hoping to salvage? I'm just
1: like old Word documents from school <laughs> and that kind of thing. Just, you know, posterity <laughs> stuff. I, I I can never bear to chuck stuff like that away. You never know what gems will be on there. Yes. Like a story
0: that I wrote at school. I wrote some great stories, mate.
1: Yeah. Great oh, stories.
0: Fair enough. You should publish them in the same sort of old crap characters that, you know, the the, the computer computer text from the, from the 1980s.
1: You yes. might have, a, who
0: knows, you might have a Bitcoin wallet somewhere. Oh, no, probably not. Disk's a bit, a bit too early for that. Yeah. But, you know, you might have some, I don't know, there might be some undiscovered gem. Some some e-cash e-cash
1: one of one of the precursors
0: to uh <laughs> to bitcoin maybe or a, a 100 bytes pornography photo <laughs> <The> really <laughs> grainy really grainy pornographic photos oh those were the
1: days when uh, <laughs> when naughty photos took half an hour to download <laughs> they download like on your screen, like a line. Of, I mean, Sworld not on, on my screen, top. obviously, on other people's <laughs> screen. Other people's, yeah, Like, a, yeah, a line at a time. <laughs> it's like, is this going to be, it looks like it, the shape of a
0: woman. It might turn out to be a woman. <laughs> oh, my God. And that, of course, you know, was a key way. I, I think the Melissa worm that I talked about earlier was spread through the um, alt.sex Usenet group. So the Usenet oh, right. groups were the chat room, early chat room type things. Yeah. And obviously, I, I, you know, inevitably one, somebody would have spread it by, by saying, you know, here's, here's sexy pictures or something. It, it, yeah. Because, of course, things took so long, as you say, it took so long to download. You could sneak a virus in the background, uh, which would be merrily downloading while you were waiting for, <laughs> to work out whether what, what was in front of you was actually a woman or not. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, then anyway, were the days. So in the apartment in Manila, Such innocent times. they find a bunch of, of those disks, a hard disk yeah. like you've got. Um, and on them, they find the name of, um, in the code, in the computer code, they find a couple of interesting things. They found a reference to a group called Soft, as in mm. uh which was a sort of underground computer hacking group at this Manila uh, college. It was so a bunch of students who were sort of playing around with code and that kind of thing. And so that was one of the people who was raided in connection with the department was was a member of GrammarSoft. But also they found a name of a guy called Michael Buen, who again was a student at this college and again a computer science student. So Michael Buen then becomes a key name. Like, oh, you know, this guy's name is on this computer disk. It's found in this apartment where the email addresses are getting sent. So gradually the net gets wider. The brother of the woman who owned the apartment, is called O'Nel de Gutzman. And he, again, is one of the members of this Soft group, and he's at this college in Manila, a computer science student, and very quickly they get interested in both these two people, Michael Bowen and O'Nel de Gutsman.
1: Are these Filipino names? Yes, yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and again, it's interesting, the Philippines is interesting, because there's this sort of language crossover where there's obviously Filipino, but a lot of English speaking going on in Manila, so it's, it's a really interesting. And actually, the... Do you remember we did a podcast about the um, North Korean hackers, the the Lazarus group? Um, The the money was laundered through the Philippines. So, again, the Filipino connection was what I find interesting how many stories sort of end up back at the Philippines.
1: Yeah, it does seem that way.
0: Yes. Um, So, anyway, Anel de Gutzman is in the spotlight. People start turning up at his house. Um, When he gets arrested, this amazing footage of, you know, when... In the UK, everything's so sort of procedural and, you know, you can't name suspects until they're charged and, you know, the police go in and they they seal off the area and stuff and they put up, you know, screens. Countries like the Philippines, that just didn't happen. Like the the pictures of the arrests are just insane. There's journalists crawling on the car and taking photos (laughs) through the sunroof, you know. You know all that footage of like arrests in countries around the world where you just think god you know due process doesn't doesn't seem to exist there <laughs> I don't
1: know I mean even in the UK occasionally I you'd get uh, special uh, you know when I was a TV reporter you'd be like embedded with the police mm. I did some dawn raids on oh, on true. unsuspecting people's flats it, like literally I you know the police would storm in and I'd be <laughs> I'd be number three. You know, the first two people would come in. I'd be running in directly behind them into like a council flat, and and it's straight into some guy's bedroom. And I'd be standing there in his bedroom. He's like in bed, just like whoa. What the,
0: who's he? Who's this guy? He's not a police. He's too short. <laughs> yes. Can't be a copper.
1: <laughs> oh, those are the data. But they fun. have
0: this. I was interested in these police shows where they they film with police forces doing raids and stuff. And they they must have to get people to sign stuff afterwards, release forms to use that footage. Presumably, I think you have to do that still. And I just think how you know it's bewildering enough to have journalists filming in your house after a police raid to, to, for them to then turn around and say, "Oh, well, sign here," you know, just release the footage so we can use your. You know, it's bizarre.
1: The rules are a lot more relaxed, though, for news programming, remember, because mm. I was filming for the news. Mm. As long as it's a news story, you can get away with a hell of yeah. a lot. If it was for a general programme, then, yeah, it'd be release forms and all that business.
0: We got the wrong, we got the wrong flat once. We, um, <laughs> <laughs> we turned up. That sounds like a sitcom about the police. Honest mistake. No, I wasn't with this. We weren't with the police. It was, it was Channel 4 News. We had been told a suspect, a person of interest lived at this particular address and they hadn't responded to emails and phone calls. So the next job is we'll just go and knock at the door. And again, you have to do this whole thing of, well, you know, if it turns ugly, how do we run away? Where's the car parked? Who's going to drive? You know, all this planning stuff. And, you know, so you get quite keyed up, you know, and finally the time, okay, so we knock at the door and you've got the microphone, you want to stick the microphone in, you know. And, um... Grabbed the microphone when the door opened and said, Mr. and such He went, oh, no, um, I think he moved out. It was a few years ago, maybe. And I went, oh, oh, OK, all right. And I started to walk away with the cameraman. And this guy went, well, hang on, who are you? What, what are you doing? You know, He was like, you can't just turn up and film me and then just wander off. And, of course, for us, we knew it was a non-story. We were not going to do anything with the footage. But for him, he'd just been at his door filmed. Very confused. And as far as he was concerned, we were walking away with the footage and we're going to see... Oh, the funny things that happen! Are you anyway, sure it wasn't him? N- I don't... Well... That he wasn't pulling the wool over your eyes.
1: I don't know. I it's, thought that story was going to end with
0: him going, no, nah, not really, no, it is me. No, it's, it's quite rare that somebody <laughs> has the moxie to just really brazen it out and pretend not to be themselves when a camera unexpectedly turns up. I'm sure it happens, but it hasn't happened to me. Anyway, anyway so so... Back to the Sorry. Philippines. um yes. the, the suspect is dragged off by the police, filmed by the world's media. That his lawyer then decides he's going to do a press conference, which is always interesting because it's like, you know, do you want to do a press conference? You know, how's that going to settle things? Yeah. So the poor suspect O'Neill de Guzman, who is uh, how old is he? It's twenty-four, I think, at this point. Twenty-three, twenty-four. is dragged in. Um, he had quite bad acne at the time, and so he was covering that up with the, you know, with a handkerchief and wearing sunglasses and stuff. And it was obvious that this wasn't going to be a kind of press conference of him sitting there, you know, kindly asking, answering questions. And his lawyer sits him down, and these press conferences are just... I hate them. I don't know about you, I just hate them. That the, the Everybody elbowing and jostling in and stuff. It just... I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Uh, and... Yeah, if the guy isn't willing to open up as well and everybody's just making him feel even more intimidated, and I imagine you were shouting out rude stuff about his acne as well, which probably (laughs) didn't help the situation.
0: But Uh, look at his face! (laughs) Also, there's this tactic of the police uh, wanting people, saying to people and requesting that they do press conferences to sort of put them under pressure, like if they suspect that the people are actually behind the crime... They will often put them onto a press conference and put them in front of the press conference to sort of sweat them a bit. Have you? Have oh, you I didn't know to...
1: that, no. Yeah, there was the. How does it. Well, you're
0: it... hoping that
1: one of the journalists will catch them out.
0: Yeah, or just, just hoping that under the pressure their, their story will change or they'll try and ad lib a bit or something. Anyway, so mm. this this is the setup you've got: world's media gathered around, this kid sitting there, and he just mumbles these answers. And what I don't know about you, what really annoys me in press conferences is when journalists don't just ask the obvious question. Like everybody sort of dances around the issue. Nobody like, asks the question you really want, you know, like, did you do A lot do of people it? have you been know?
1: complaining about that during the coronavirus, haven't they? Well, that yeah. None of the journalists are asking Boris Johnson the uh, the questions that the people at home want to <laughs> yeah, ask. exactly. They're just trying to do gotchas yes. the whole time instead. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's, it's difficult in a press conference because you do want to kind of, you know, you only get one stab to mar- ask your question. But mm. but as I say, I just so many of these things I've watched. I'm like, why? So with this in the Philippines, again, the, the, you know, nobody sort of said, look, did you did you like this virus? Did you, the closest anybody got was somebody said, is there a possibility you might have released this virus by accident? Yeah. And one of the very few comprehensible English answers that Onel de Gutzman gave was it's possible. <laughs> that was that was it. And that was end of press conference. Possible. Okay. <laughs> end of press conference. Packs. And of course, by this stage, you know people had started the virus had started you know being cracked down on and spotted. Um, the, the, the problem actually with the, the Lovebug virus was because you could download it and tweak it yourself. There was dozens and dozens of copycat versions afterwards. Mm. So it wasn't the case that if the attachment wasn't called Love Letter, it wasn't infected. There was all these sort of spin-offs and stuff. And it, that made it really hard for, well, increasingly hard for virus defenders to sort of spot it, because there's no obvious, it keeps morphing and changing. And again, that was one of the early sort of, you know, developments of, you know, in order for the virus to continue being effective, it needs to keep morphing, it needs to keep changing. Um, so again, with Lovebug, the fact that you could unleash new versions meant that, it, you know, it had quite a long, long half-life, did Lovebug, you know, there was quite a few versions afterwards. But they started sort of gradually bring it to a halt, and you know, in the press conference, how was it changing? Who was changing it? <clears throat> you, people could just download it and then just tweak it themselves and release it. So anybody who had a you know malicious intent could just could just get it, get the code. Oh, and, okay. and, yeah. um, so again, you know, like w- w- you know, with software that you have, you know, with Microsoft Word or whatever, you can't just look at the code behind Microsoft Word.
1: No.
0: Y- you know, whereas you know, with the viruses, those early viruses, you could you could download the code and literally just go through it line by line. Um, obviously, if I was right, sort of cottoned onto this and, and introduced various sort of protections and so on. Um, so that was why, you know, it's a like lot of- the
1: world of cryptocurrencies. I know, I know, I know a world which you know well. I do, and yeah, my, you know, most cryptocurrencies, particularly the early ones, were just taking the code, the freely available code of Bitcoin, and tweaking it. A bit <coughs> yeah, and then yeah, giving yeah. it a new name. Yeah. and before you know it, you've made billions of dollars <laughs> by,
0: by selling tokens of it to people. I've heard as well with cryptocurrency. I've heard most of them are still based on Bitcoin that they're they're all sort of riffs on that original. but is that true? are things like Not all Ether, of them, no, and but ethereum um, and stuff are they all actually from scratch? Well new? It,
1: no, yeah, ethereum <coughs> was was pretty much from scratch, but at the same <coughs> time, it's, you know clearly. Owes a lot to Bitcoin hmm. in terms of its in terms of its structure and and many of the parameters that it utilises. Hmm. But yeah, a lot of cryptocurrencies are just uh, tweaked versions of Bitcoin. Uh, the cleverer ones, though. Mm. sort of more doing their own thing and nice. are, are very very different yeah. but anyway i mean that's a discussion for another day <laughs> it's like I can, i've written a book for heaven's you've sake you've literally written could, a book I, on this yes yeah exactly <laughs> it so let's forget that let's forget that what? i was just using it as an analogy yes
0: and a good one at that yeah thank yeah. you so, thank so, you um i should actually there's mm, there, there's something i should mention so when i started for for the book, I I was writing crime dot com. I thought you know I need like I need an intro chapter. I need like a, an easy in intro, shallow end you know chapter to get people into the book. And yeah. I was looking around, I was casting around for like when does this book start? You know, when does cybercrime start? You know because it's it's like okay what what's the sort of you know what's the beginning point? And I you know I hit on the love bug. I thought love bug would be really interesting. And also I will be honest and there's a bit of a confession that um, the love bug was my first attempt to get into journalism. OK, which failed pretty badly. Um, <laughs> I sent a, a sort of fairly mediocre and poorly researched article to The Guardian, of course, because, you know, aim low. Um, I thought Guardian, <laughs> yes, Guardian will print my thoughts. And somebody very kindly got back to me from The Guardian and said, um, well, thank you. Thank you for your email, uh, Mr. White. We're not going to publish it. but uh, And also sending us a, an email titled uh, Lovebug during the middle of an outbreak <laughs> of the virus with the same name. <laughs> Probably wasn't the wisest.
1: <laughs> no, no, you do not think that one through.
0: So no, that didn't. But having said that, like, you said everyone's
1: clicking on love bug emails. Well, so, that's uh, true. Yes,
0: and then getting it could infected, have worked
1: yeah. in your
0: favor. Yeah. So I sort of thought, you know, maybe so the book is a chance for me to kind of, you know, punish, banish my demons and get out there. So I um, decided I was going to track down the. I was going to. I was going to work out who did it, who who, who was behind it. And sure. the, for me, I looked at. So there was the two people. There was remember. Um, there was O'Neill de Gutzman, the guy in the press conference. Yeah. And then there was Michael Buen, who was the name of the guy who was on the computer disks, whose viruses is on the computer disks. Yes. Michael Buen, is still around. he's still around. He's on Twitter. He's got a Facebook profile and stuff. He's still a, still a coder. He's still, I think, in the Philippines. And he's always very smart. You know, his tweets are very smart. He's, you what know, he's doing Onel de Gutzman just vanished there is no tra- the guy is just gone he's, he's just disappeared there is no there's a few de in the Philippines and there's a few de who have I think relatives called O'Neill but and also I was looking at Michael Bowen thinking this guy is very smart and you know he's quite sassy and if you look at the Lovebug code there was sort of you know there were references in it to like the hacker group and do you know what I mean when you, know, when you just look at somebody and you think yeah he, he looks like the- you know he looks like the right guy yeah So I got in touch with Michael Buer and I was like, look, I'm coming to the Philippines. I want to lay this story to rest. You know, can we chat? He didn't get back to me. He just, he has blanked me continuously. Um, What happened with regard to his court case? Well, so this was the interesting thing. Nobody was ever prosecuted in the Philippines because there was no law against hacking in 2000 (laughs) in the (laughs) Philippines. (laughs) So nobody, Onelda Gutzman, Michael Pouen, nobody got prosecuted. They they had to let them all go in the end. So that's part of the reason there's been this 20-year mystery because right. nobody's ever, you know, there's no prosecution, nobody, you know, nobody in the frame. Um, I tracked down a couple of members of Grammarsoft, the group these guys were part of, um, who said they, they said it was basically like a sort of group of students who, I don't know, they kind of worked a bit on code. They wrote viruses as sort of an experiment, but obviously some of them were on the the deeper end of cybercrime and there was a bit of like credit card shenanigans from what they said. So, yeah, it, it looked to me like, you know, a little after-school club that had some innocent and some nefarious members at various times. Mm. Um, and then, so Michael Buen is not getting back to me. i was thinking, OK, maybe I need to try O'Neill de Gutzman. There's no... try. I'll be honest with you, Glenn. I, you know, I've been quite desperate in some of these investigations and I've... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, sorry, no, no. <laughs> dude, uh, not at all. I have taken some desperate. I mean, in this case, I, I, got, a, I got a lead on a, a Mr. de Gutsman who worked at a hospital who seemed to have a relative that fitted it. So I ended up phoning up the hospital in the Philippines who obviously completely, trying to explain in somebody's second language that you're an investigative journalist trying to track down the cousin of the wife of somebody who worked at the hospital. <laughs> just it became increasingly desperate um but i booked my ticket to the philippines and i was like i've got to you know i'm going get your money's worth yeah um so i ended up on a website called um pinoy badass what <laughs> pinoy badass
1: pinoy badass pinoy right, okay. i
0: think pinoy is i from what i know of it it's a sort of slang term for like um filipinos who are sort of you know, edgy, edgy Filipinos. You know, sort of gangstery type Filipinos. I think that's what pinoy means, and badass, okay. obviously, as well. It's when when your you, your ass is bad.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, in Filipino, there was somebody who commented on Onel de Gutsman, and they said um, he works at a market in a, in the Quiapo area of the of, of Manila. Uh, and I'm like, okay, that's a lead. I'll go there then. So I arrived. <laughs> I arrived in Manila. And there's this enormous church called um the Basilica of the Black Nazarene, which is this huge church. And it's one of these sort of evangelical churches with people queuing outside and wailing and loads of icons and stuff. And then next to that church is this enormous market. But the person in the post on Pinot Baras had said that an de Gutzman works in a mobile phone shop in that market.
1: Uh- Okay. And I'm like, right,
0: well, all I've got to do is I'll just walk around the market, find the mobile phone shop, and that's where we'll be. You know, seems feasible. Um, So I go in, and there's an entire sub-market of phone shops. Like, you know these little tiny stores with, like, 12 people working, you know, literally elbow to elbow, dismantling iPhones and probably jailbreaking them and stuff? Yeah, that. Two floors dozens of stalls and i was like oh fuck (laughs) wow yeah not easy so what do you do what do you you know what's your sort of what's your next step just shout oh no (laughs) 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 i came close um i didn't shout but i wrote his name on a piece of paper okay and i started just showing it to literally showing it to people at random
1: you didn't have a photo of him
0: then well no, no no, but also well I could have got one on my phone but the only f- it's from 20 years ago and obviously in the. do you remember I was talking oh, about yeah, the I suppose the, was, the acne do. in the press conference Yeah. the reason the acne is important is he was holding a scarf up against his face right so even in the picture that I've got from 20 years ago he's wearing sunglasses he's got a scarf and nobody's going to you know even yeah, okay fair enough so I, I brandish his name and I'm like I'll give this half an hour and also I look like I look like a tourist dad who's lost his kids. Like, I'm obviously, you know, I'm tall and I'm white in a market of people who are shorter and dark and darker skinned. And I'm wandering around with this piece of bun. I'm thinking, Jesus, I look, I just look so out of place. (laughs) Um, And then somebody says, I know him. Wow. Yeah, I was surprised. So, yeah. um, My first thought would be, that's not true. My thought, well, my second thought, my first thought was, hey, and my immediate second thought, like you, was, this isn't true. So I'm like, so what, you know, would you know where he is now? And he gave me the address of a, of a shopping mall across town and said he works on a, mo- a mobile phone store there. In the next episode, face to face with Onel de Gutzman. Will he confess all after 20 years?